1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozeman. The tradition of political liberalism has a long and complicated history, filled with twists, turns, critiques, and responses that have filled books, essays, and lectures for several centuries now. Questions of the importance and limitations of indi- individual rights and how to balance different interests have produced no shortage of theoretical conflict as different figures have attempted to make sense of the importance and limits of individuals and their rights. Diving right into this debate is Mac McManus, returning again to the New Books Network to discuss his recent book, A Critical Legal Examination of Liberalism and Liberal Rights. Going back as far as Burke, Hobbes, Kant, and Locke, and then through critiques of liberalism from both radically progressive and reactionary orientations, the book traces the various ideas of liberalism up to the present in figures such as Abermas, Rawls, and McIntyre. It also posits its own understanding of liberalism, which emphasizes every individual's right to self-authorship as a central pillar for developing the liberal project. Crossing the fields of history, philosophy, political theory, and law, the book offers a number of interventions across an array of fields and will be of immense use to those seeking to understand some of the most pressing concerns of our time. Matt McManus is a professor of politics at Whitman College. He is the author of a number of books, including The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, and is also the, one of the co-authors of Myth and Mayhem, A Leftist Critique of Jordan Peterson, both of which we discussed in previous episodes on this podcast. Matt McManus, welcome back to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure.
1: Yeah, so we always like to have guests introduce themselves um, at the beginning, and uh, this will be uh, the third time we've had you on. So uh, just to kind of reintroduce yourself, could you maybe tell us a bit about your research interests and how this book we're going to be discussing kind of fits into your overarching project?
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, and again, thanks for having me back on. Uh, I think the last time I was here was to talk about, was it the Jordan Peterson book? or um... It was the postmodern conservatism, I believe. Uh, okay, good. Uh, well, the reason I ask is just I've always seen my work as having two central prongs. Uh, one is a critical prong uh, that's essentially analyzing and critiquing uh, the vulgarities of the postmodern epoch, particularly the more reactionary vulgarities that have emerged, like postmodern conservatism. Uh, but the other prong of my book is an argument for what we could broadly call uh, liberal socialism or liberal democratic socialism, I imagine is the more technical term. Uh, so the last couple of books that I've released in articles were all about the first prong. Uh, and this book was a really an effort to recenter myself on the second uh, by offering a kind of constructive argument for what an alternative to the status quo might look like. That's nonetheless still realistically grounded in what we can hope for over the next couple decades.
1: Yeah. So to kick things off, um, a lot of this book is kind of dedicated towards offering up a history of liberal theory. Um, And one of the main places you start with this history is with Hobbes. And one of the key points you hone in with his work is centering desire as the starting point for his political theory. So could you tell us a bit about that and how this Kind of functions for you as a key moment uh, kind of in the early development of liberalism?
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, Well, I should say that whenever you're writing about something uh, or a tradition that's as complex as liberalism, it's always a challenge to figure out where to begin uh, because there are obviously antecedents uh, to the liberal tradition that go far, far back, right? Uh, I mean, there have been very sophisticated and intelligent commentators who've located the roots of liberal individualism and things like. Um, You know, the Christian tradition, particularly, you know, the work of somebody like, Augustine. uh, There are also a lot of people who talk about Renaissance humanism and republicanism as major influences. The reason that I decided to start with Hobbes is because I think that Hobbes more clearly than even many of uh, the liberal thinkers that came afterwards uh, framed the broad contours of the liberal outlook very starkly, uh, and therefore kind of raised the stakes, uh, for what was going on in political theory and the shift towards liberalism, uh, in a manner that doesn't always come through in the work of lesser authors. Uh, and of course, this is an unusual thing to say because Hobbes himself wasn't particularly liberal in his politics. You know, he was an authoritarian, uh, while he had a certain amount to say, uh, in favor of freedom of religion in the private realm. Uh, of course, you know, this all should be very carefully relegated. Um, but what I think made Hobbes a distinctively proto-liberal figure uh, was his insistence that human subjectivity uh, and the pursuit of human desire is at the epicenter uh, of all political action. And you find this coming through very clearly in his account of the sci- of the state of nature, which very vigorously attempts to be scientific uh, in its orientation. Uh, and this includes its approach to morality, which for Hobbes is quite striking uh, because he says, very vividly uh, what a lot of lesser authors, again, would have been too timid uh, to unpack, which is essentially that in the state of nature, morality is relative, right? Uh, We do not desire the good. What's good is what we desire. Uh, And this is relative to each person. Uh, And of course, this means that in the state of nature, there's no such thing as fundamental rights uh, in the sense that, you know, are, are meaningful in any way, shape or form. Uh, you know, we each have a right to everything uh, or the pursuit of what it is that we want. But the problem with this, of course, is that for prudential reasons, it leads to catastrophe because in the state of nature, we engage in the war of all against all. Uh, Each person is relatively equal to one another in terms of their inherent natural capabilities, which means that even the strongest can't really get to enjoy uh, what it is that they come into possession of for a very long time. And this, of course, is the preempt for him to argue that we need to put aside our general or universal right to everything uh, in return for an exclusive or protected right to some things Um, by establishing a sovereign that's going to protect our right to life in particular, to a lesser extent, the right to property. Uh, And while this is a come down of sorts uh, from the natural equality uh, and limitless freedom of the state of nature, uh, it's nonetheless a price that Hobbes thinks we should be willing to pay. Uh, And so I think his work is Fascinating uh, in this regard for pulling so many strands of thinking together uh, and synthesizing them uh, into something that was unique and would frame the history of liberal thought going forward.
1: Yeah, moving right along, um, property rights are kind of a central pillar in much liberal theory, uh, but they often occupy a very uh, difficult place since they have to be uh, managed against other competing sets of rights. Uh, And you see in figures like Madison and Locke, a growing sense of the complexity of uh, property rights and how they should be related uh, within this kind of broader liberal context. So can you kind of talk about the developments that happen in their work?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I should say that uh, the early sections of the book were deeply influenced by a Canadian political uh, theorist called. C.P. McPherson, uh, whose book on possessive individualism has had a big impact on left-wing theory going forward. Um, but the kind of argument that I make following McPherson is that early strands of liberal thought, for instance, those articulated by people like Locke and Madison, uh, while they had a lot going for them uh, in terms of their emphasis on religious rights, uh, qualified rights to political participation, and so on, uh, nonetheless put far too much of an emphasis on the naturalness of Uh, of property rights uh, and the consequent inequalities um, in material standing uh, that people like Locke and Madison saw as flowing from uh, this commitment to property rights. And a lot of this is, if you actually delve into their work, very spectral, since it's not exactly clear on what basis they justify in property rights. uh, That doesn't deviate from the emerging scientific um, mindset that's coming to dominate the age. So for instance, Locke, Uh, makes this argument that property rights flow from mixing our labor uh, with the natural material of the world. Um, And this is also, again, uh, important since he draws a parallel here uh, to the property rights of somebody like God, uh, who has possession of the world because he created it. Uh, But this is a very metaphysical outlook, right? Uh, It's not clear at any given point what exactly we're referring to if we're talking about something that's empirically tangible in the world, which is odd given that uh, Locke is an empiricist. Uh, since, you know, labor, willpower, land, property, you know, all of these things have a kind of unusually metaphys- uh, unusual metaphysical status, right? Uh, and it's not clear to me uh, how it is that the kind of workmanship ideal that emerges uh, from this Lockean-Madisonian outlook really is all that sustainable moving into the 19th century. Nonetheless, uh, it's continued to have a tremendous influence on the right-wing liberal tradition, which is the primary one that I criticize, and in part because it's so linked to our ideological sensibilities about who deserves what under a capitalist system of exchange. Uh, you know, even people who would reject the metaphysical contours of something like uh, Locke's theory of entitlement, and nonetheless still are attached to this idea that we own what we own in some sense because we deserved it, because we work hard for it, right? Uh, And you can see the kind of ubiquity of this mindset when even uh, polemicists, uh, frankly, you know, just hacks uh, like Dinesh D'Souza will say things like, well, if we can't hold on to the workmanship ideal, then capitalism is just unjust and would have to be discarded. Uh, And this is one of the reasons I direct so much attention to it in the book, uh, because I think that what you can see is the liberal tradition gradually maturing out of this emphasis on mysterious property rights and labor as time goes forward. And I think there are good reasons for that, that we can talk a little bit later about a little bit later.
1: Yeah. Another figure who kind of looms large over any discussion of the history of liberalism is Kant. And for Kant, you talk a lot about uh, his emphasis on the autonomous will and rational subjectivity Mm -hmm. um, and the individual as a starting point for thinking more broadly about uh, political developments, particularly with uh, relate relations between and under the state. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the developments that Kant brings to this history?
0: Sure. Well, one of the, this is actually a good point to juxtapose him against somebody like Madison, right? Uh, Cause it's worth noting that Madison and federalist 10 argue that a pure democracy would be a disaster uh, in part because the job of any kind of political institution is to effectively manage class conflict. Uh, and because there will always be divisions between classes in society it's important that it, manage these, it manages these in a the way that's as effective uh, and as harmless as possible. Uh, and to a certain extent, this also means that Madison will say things like, well, we don't necessarily need to grant everyone the same democratic rights because those who have property uh, are more invested in politics than those who don't, which is why it is that they should have more of a say, right? Uh, Kant very thoroughly rejects this in his work. Uh, you know he does have an argument for property rights. Uh, he also has some exclusionary and reactionary tendencies in his work that we can talk about. Uh, but the general orientation of the kind of Kantian project is, as he states in the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, uh, every human being has a fundamental dignity which puts them, as he puts it, beyond price. Uh, they cannot be just used as a means to another person's end. And the way that he cashes this out politically is by saying that any system where we which imposes a law upon us, uh, which we would not be willing to oppose upon ourselves, is illegitimate. Uh, And of course, this has revolutionary implications. uh, It's one of the reasons that Kant was a kind of soft uh, supporter of the French Revolution. Um, And there's a strong democratic connotation here, right? Uh, Since, of course, you can say that uh, the only system which would enable us to give a law unto ourselves uh, and to do so in a manner that's respectful of the dignity of all would be something like a democracy. Uh, and in making this move Kant draws a remarkable association, uh, between the kind of liberal individualism that you saw in earlier thinkers, uh, and the kind of argument for a more robust democracy, uh, that people like myself and others, uh, try to put forward later, uh, by saying you can't just conceptually detach them or ideologically detach them in the way that, uh, Madison wants to, they're inextricably linked.
1: Yeah. Another major, uh, addition to this history is utilitarianism. Uh, And they also kind of have this marriage of reasonable subjectivity, uh, but they also emphasize uh, pleasure, um, or at least a very qualified understanding of pleasure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And their goal is to kind of increase it on the whole, although it's, you know, obviously not uh, an argument for hedonism, but it is um, a central way they have of understanding the role of the state and the purpose of politics. So can you Uh, tell us a bit about what utilitarianism adds to this?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, I should say first off that the relationship between utilitarianism and liberalism uh, is more complicated than it might seem on the surface. Occasionally, you'll get figures like, uh, say, the earlier Hannah Arendt um, or Nietzsche, who will just lump them all together. uh, And there are reasons for this, uh, but it's inaccurate to say that utilitarianism leads inexorably uh, to a liberal outlook. Uh, If you look at the early work of people like, say, Jeremy Bentham, utilitarianism... Uh, actually bears relatively little in common with liberalism as a political doctrine, even if it shares a lot in common with it metaphysically uh, and in the way that it interprets human subjectivity, um, because while Bentham emphasizes, like Hobbes uh, and like other uh, liberals, uh, the role that the pursuit of desire plays in motivating human action, uh, his argument is that the proper morality to flow from this isn't one that's necessarily focused on individual rights Uh, but on aggregate utility maximization, right? You know, his kind of famous bumper sticker statement is that you should try to secure the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Uh, And as many people know, uh, securing the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people means that there might very often be times where you can compromise individual rights if that can be demonstrated to produce greater happiness overall for the entirety of society. Uh, and there's some very radical implications that you can draw from this. You know, one of the most famous thought experiments uh, people give critiquing liberal, uh, sorry, uh, utilitarianism, uh, is the doctor uh, and the patient, right? Where you can imagine there's a doctor, uh, he's about to treat a patient who's come in for cosmetic surgery, uh, but suddenly there's an accident and there's somebody who need, and there are four other patients, one of whom needs a heart, one of whom needs a pair of lungs, uh, and two others who need a pair of kidneys, Uh, Well, a strict utilitarian might say what the doctor should do is cut up his patients sitting there uh, to redistribute their organs to the new patients that have arrived, because that will increase aggregate happiness. Um, But any convinced liberal will probably say, no, uh, this entails such a tremendous compromise uh, of an individual's rights. It cannot be permissible under any circumstances. And there are other uh, issues related to medical ethics that we can talk about there as well. Uh, The person who really actually is able to enact uh, what's sometimes called the rights utility synthesis, uh, or who links, if you want, utilitarianism uh, to liberalism, uh, isn't actually the founder of utilitarianism, Jeremy Bentham, uh, but J.S. Mill, uh, the author of On Liberty. And Mill is a very interesting thinker uh, as a kind of mature Enlightenment figure because where he differs from Bentham is in arguing that actually The way that we can ensure the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people uh, is essentially by allowing people to engage in experiments in living. Um, So rather than trying to impose upon them uh, some kind of aggregated pattern uh, of – what's the way to put it? Rather than trying to impose uh, from above uh, some kind of aggregate pattern – sorry, um, aggregate pattern – Um, with regard to how it is that we think utility should be distributed, it's best to allow each individual uh, to pursue their own conception of the good life, since they tend to know what makes them happy, and giving them the freedom to do so is likely to increase happiness overall. Uh, And not only was this more likely to increase happiness overall, uh, for all the individuals involved, uh, the kind of experiments and living that people engage with while pursuing their own conception of the good life, their own happiness, their own way, uh, can also serve as an example to others, uh, which has a kind of purifying function uh in that we can we can learn what kind of lifestyles aren't amenable uh to an individual's happiness and gradually discard them through this experimental process,
1: moving right along, another figure you look at is Rousseau. Um, And this was one of the most interesting parts of the book for me. Um, You talk about how Rousseau has this kind of idealized state of nature in the past that has been corrupted by um, property rights and commodity forms and all that stuff. Um, That's very well known. But what uh, you add is the often neglected element of Rousseau, where he thought that um, because of the addition of uh, private property rights, there was a way in which we could no longer go back. And so his work is actually much more forward looking in your view than his often than he's often given credit for. So can you tell us a bit about Rousseau here um, and what he's adding for you?
0: Yeah. And I should say that Rousseau is certainly one of the more unusual uh, figures in the history of Western political thought. Uh, And it's very difficult to actually situate him with regard uh, to any unified outlook because There are different strands of his thinking, some of which sit harmoniously together, uh, others which seem quite discordant. Uh, And a lot of theorists have tried to kind of bring a unity uh, to all this that I actually don't think Rousseau's work can bear. Uh, And this is really exemplified in the tensions uh, that you're talking about. So people remember that in uh, the Discourse on the Origins of Inequality, uh, Rousseau almost gives this kind of secularized myth of the fall. Uh, where he says that once upon a time, all human beings were happy. Uh, this is in part because most of their material needs were gratified, but also because they didn't compare themselves to others uh, in a way that brings about a profound feeling of alienation um, for the individuals that live in modernity. Um, but once, eventually, uh, this kind of idenic period fell apart uh, because the most evil man in history uh, decided that rather than be content with sharing the world with everyone else, uh, he was going to enclose a bit of land and say, this is now my private property. Uh, and the consequence of this is gradual increases in inequality, uh, which led to individuals starting to compare themselves uh, to others, which produces the sense of dissatisfaction with life uh, and also induces a feelings of competitiveness, uh, which corrode the natural bonds of sympathy with which link us, right? You know, this is well known and people have strong feelings about it one way or another. Uh, You know, Voltaire famously, uh, at the time when this was written, satirized it as wanting to return to the monkeys. Uh, I don't think that's really accurate, but you can kind of sometimes read that into the book that, well, maybe it'd be better for us to go back in time to this idyllic period. But interestingly enough, Rousseau never actually pursues that kind of argument. Uh, The closest it comes uh, is late in his life uh, around the stage where he writes revelries of a solitary walker uh, where he talks about trying to reharmonize oneself with nature by walking alone in the woods and so on uh, you know which was had a big influence on romanticism but in terms of his political program what you see in the social contract is him arguing for something like Geneva or Sparta or Geneva with Sparta being the ideal political model uh, and it's not clear how exactly this is supposed to link up to his early arguments about inequality uh, because while the kind of state that he argues for in the social contract has a certain egalitarian quality to it uh, in that, you know, all individuals are supposed to participate in the political process and give the law unto themselves, uh, Rousseau picks up on a fundamental problem uh, with this kind of democratic argument uh, because he points out that any purely majoritarian system doesn't will actually involve someone else imposing their will on another. Uh, in this case, uh, a majority imposing their will upon a minority. Uh, and rather than going the route that many liberals would take, which is to say, well, this goes to demonstrate why it is that we need strong protections for individual rights, so that even if majorities will get their way most of the time, uh, they can't compromise the independence of others in too draconian a fashion, uh, Rousseau actually insists that, no, uh, what we need to do is draw this distinction between g- what most people want as an aggregate uh, and the general will, uh, which reflects the real desires of the people. Uh, and this real de- this general will occupies a very mysterious place uh, in Rousseau's political theory. And Many pl- theorists have acknowledged this, right? Uh, in that it's not just the aggregate of everyone's will. Uh, it's not just reflective of the majority will. Uh, It's something like what you really would want if you actually were to reflect upon it. Uh, And to the extent where people or individuals deviate from the general will, uh, in his infamous phrase, they can be forced to be free. Right. And not only does this not have uh, an egalitarian connotation to it. Uh, A lot of people have detected a kind of totalitarian ethos underpinning this. Uh, And, while I think that this is unfair, or at least reads too much into the text, there's no doubt that uh, these kinds of arguments about the general will have proved profoundly influential amongst authoritarians and totalitarians on all ends of the political spectrum. Uh, one of the points that I make in the book is, while Rousseau is often associated with left-wing iterations of totalitarianism, right? so, uh, it's also noteworthy that somebody like Carl Schmitt, uh, who was the crown jurist of the Third Reich, uh, found Rousseau's arguments in this respect very influential in arguing for a authoritarian Nazi dictatorship. Am I saying that the dictator is the one who creates or reflects the real will of the people and also constitutes the people? Um, it's a very interesting, difficult history um, or legacy uh, that you can see emerging from Rousseau's work, which is why I think he's such a fascinating thinker.
1: Yeah, another... A key person you look at is Edmund Burke, who has uh, a more conservative orientation, uh, particularly with the way he sees uh, developing a political uh, platform or orientation via historical reflection, historical study, um, and using kind of this broader context and understanding of certain traditions as a way of finding the right attitude or right balance Uh, So can you tell us a bit about what you see him adding to this uh, history?
0: Sure. Well, Burke is important uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, I'll only signpost two, right? One is that he's one of the first individuals to really develop a radical critique of the Enlightenment uh, that doesn't just rely on a desire to go back uh, to an earlier kind of medieval orientation uh, towards the world. Uh, It's worth noting that in many respects, Burke was quite a modern individual right? Uh, he supported the American Revolution. He was anti, uh, he was opposed to British colonialism in India. Uh, he wrote a pioneering work in aesthetics. Uh, he served as a member of parliament for a long period of time. Uh, he was always kind of softly committed to liberalism, uh, but he was extremely critical of the Enlightenment conceit that reason could essentially be used to remake the world or to make the world into a better place. Uh, and you see him expressing critiques of this, as far back as his work on the sublime and the beautiful, uh, where he points out that he thinks that reason governs human affairs to a far lesser degree uh, than many of the philosophers at the time claim. Uh, and in and of itself, this might not be all that dramatic. Uh, you know, there are plenty of reasons to be skeptical of the kind of overweening uh, power that you can give to reason. Uh, but the way that he casts this, caches this out uh, is, of course, as an argument later on for conservative politics. Uh, where he tries to develop what we might call a philosophically-minded anthropology. I don't think he'd like that term, but it's just my conversation, Uh, where he argues that most people are fundamentally pretty conservative at their core. They don't reason all that carefully about why they hold to their beliefs. They don't critically analyze the traditions that they're embedded in. Uh, They tend to accept them, uh, and they want to perpetuate them, over time, in part because they acknowledge some kind of responsibility uh, to the figures that have come before that pass these traditions and these practices on to them. Uh, and Burke's argument, consequently, is that we should be cautious in engaging in any kind of reform, because uh, that deviates from the basic nature uh, of many individuals, right? Or most individuals, the philosophes being a notable exception. Uh, and this raises some interesting questions, right? Well, if most people are fundamentally pretty conservative in the way that Burke is describing. Why do so many of them choose to become revolutionaries? Uh, And, of course, Burke can't say that the reason so many people at the time period, at least, were choosing to become revolutionaries uh, is because the existing state of affairs is deeply problematic, uh, since that would lead to uh, an anti-conservative argument. Uh, So what he does is to say that the reason is the corrupting influence uh, of these philosophes. Uh, these kind of cafe intellectuals who don't really have a lot of experience with the so-called real world, uh, who dream up fantastic kingdoms that ne- have never been and can never be, uh, and try to force society to conform to them. Uh, and because they're often gifted orators, uh, or they can put forward convincing intellectual arguments, they can kind of corrupt the inherent conservatism of the people uh, and get them to support radical changes. So, um, And this is important, of course, uh, not just intellectually but tonally because it influences generations of conservative commentators afterwards uh, down to this present day uh, who tend to have a skeptical or cynical attitude uh, towards the role intellectuals play in society. Um, Usually combined with this populist belief that the the average individual would be a pretty conservative person uh, if it just wasn't for all these eggheads uh, going around filling his or her mind. Uh, with empty thoughts about worlds that cannot be or should not be. Uh, and so Burke is a very influential figure this way. Um, I think that, you know, he's more complicated than some conservative commentators give him credit for. Um, but the ar- argument or sorry, the ar- account of him that I give in the book uh, conform to the pattern I just described.
1: Moving right along. Um- And turning to some of the critics of liberalism, you look at uh, Karl Marx and more recently Slavoj Zizek as bringing in a critique of liberal rights uh, from a more radical political perspective. But this critique uh, is a bit more complicated than kind of the headline version would, of course, be because they're not criticizing um, people having, you know, say the right to self-expression, for example, um, but instead trying to call to attention the limits of what this sort of emphasis on rights will have under a certain uh, political economy. So can you tell us a bit about this critique of liberalism?
0: Sure. Uh, And I should say that uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find any kind of critique of liberal rights uh, anywhere on the political spectrum, particularly on the political left, that's been more influential than Marx's, uh, particularly his account on on the Jewish question. uh, When... I was a first year undergrad, uh, you know, it was one of the stock pieces that we read uh, that was you know, signposted as a critique of liberalism that was worth engaging in. Uh, but the argument that Marx makes in that essay is more complicated than just being critical of liberalism. Um, this was really nicely um, articulated by Igor uh in his book, Revisiting Marx's Critique of Liberalism, uh, where he points out that Marx actually had... A great deal in common uh, with many of the liberals that he's criticizing, because of course he's not calling for abandoning rights to expression, abandoning rights to religious practices. Uh, he's certainly not calling for denying freedom of the press. Uh, he wants people to have to see their voting rights expanded, not constrained. Uh, what he's concerned about is that the kind of abstract universalistic argument uh, for liberal rights dissociates from the material conditions that enabled this particular conception of rights to emerge at the fore at that given time. Uh, and the argument you know, that you see in on the Jewish question uh, is already anticipating what Marx will later uh, do, uh, which is to try to historicize moral outlooks by saying that they don't actually embody these kinds of universal trans-historical morals, uh, any kind of moral or ideological system including a system of rights that emerges, uh, is invariably stamped, uh, with the time period from which it emerged. Uh, and in particular, of course, since Marx is an economic materialist, uh, from the kind of relations of production, and uh, the level of technological development, uh, that you see in any kind of society, uh, at any given time. Uh, and he develops this in of course, a number of complicated and interesting ways later in his work, um, but the kind of political takeaway from this is that while many of us believe when we're arguing for our liberal rights, uh, that we're making some kind of trans-historical argument for their universal legitimacy, we always need to be sensitive about the fact uh, that our commitment to this outlook is preconditioned by any number of factors that are well beyond our immediate understanding. Uh, and the point of a Marxist critique is to make us more cognizant of this uh, and, you know, a good example of this would be um, circum-Marx's critique of Locke later on, or good Marxist critique of Locke, uh, where Marx will point out, well, Locke had this very strong commitment to property rights that he took to be trans right? uh, You right? Know, people have always just created property through mixing their labor with the land. Uh, but actually, Marx is going to say Locke would only emphasize uh, this kind of conception of property rights at the time he did because you were starting to see the emergence uh, of the new liberal capitalist order at that time. Uh, And Mark was in Mark, uh, sorry, and Locke was in this sense reflecting his own time period uh, as much as he was making a trans historical argument for a certain conception of what liberalism should be about. Yeah.
1: Another source of criticism of liberalism, um, albeit a highly qualified criticism comes from a number of theorists, uh, particularly in areas like feminist theory, um, as well as uh, studies across different uh, uh, racial history and things like that. Um, Can you kind of unpack some of these critical legal perspectives and how they kind of came to see themselves, not as necessarily trying to ruin liberalism, but offering these kind of highly qualified criticisms of some of its limitations for different groups of
0: people? Sure, and as I say, this section of the book is obviously the most circumscribed um, because the volume of literature uh, that offers left-wing critiques uh, from any number of different standpoints of liberalism uh, is vast. Right, I did an entirely other book, entirely new book, uh, just to give you a glimpse of it. Um, but generally, the kind of arguments that you'll see critical race theorists, uh, radical feminists making, uh, tends to break down into two different uh, two different types um, some people like Lani Guinier, um will argue that the problem with um, liberalism isn't liberalism itself it's just the fact that liberal societies have always been unwilling uh, to grant the same liberal rights uh, to all their members right uh, and I think that this is undeniably true right? Uh, I mean, liberal societies for a long period of time didn't even grant voting rights uh, to women. Uh, It was only around the 1970s that some liberal societies granted the same property rights to women. Uh, And, you know, you can list off uh, many other examples. And the same is true uh, if you look at the way that uh, many individuals are racially marginalized, denied access to basic liberal rights, like political participation uh, in the United States and elsewhere. And you can run off the list. Uh, and the argument of these kind of more soft critics uh, is that we should just extend liberal rights to all uh, to establish a genuinely just uh, society. And you know this is the kind of position you see people like Martha Nussbaum take. Uh, the more radical crit- criticisms uh, that are sometimes leveled against a liberalism uh, is that it was an inadequate uh, it was an inadequate uh, way of moralizing about the world to begin with, uh, in part because it reflects a very narrow vision uh, of what a human being is uh, and consequently has a very narrow understanding uh, of political morality. And there are all kinds of examples you can find of this uh, in the critical legal tradition. Uh, One example that I point to and devote some attention to in my book is the argument of the radical feminist Catherine McKinnon, uh, who is probably most famous uh, for her critiques of pornography uh, but I think her best work is the classic, uh, Towards a Feminist Theory of the State. And some of the arguments that McKinnon will make in this book uh, are very much in a liberal mold, uh, Or in, where she'll say that the problem is that, for instance, liberal property rights uh, or rights to bodily autonomy have never been adequately extended to women. Uh, an example she'll give uh, is how it is that most men uh, will privilege a certain conception of bodily autonomy... When it comes to talking about liberal rights, but nonetheless, we'll see no contradiction between this and demanding uh, very stringent restrictions uh, on access to things like abortion, and arguing uh, for these restrictions by saying, "Well, women play this vital role in reproducing the body politic. Uh, never mind the fact that not allowing them access to abortion is a serious compromise um, when it comes to their bodily autonomy." Right? Uh, but McKinnon uh, doesn't just argue in this vein she sometimes say things like, well, the liberal emphasis on things like rights to expression, uh, reflects a very male approach to the world, uh, because it doesn't realize how many forms of expression can actually be exceptionally harmful, uh, to women. Uh, and the example given frequently by her, uh, and people like Andrea Dworkin, uh, who she's often linked with, uh, was pornography, right? Uh, the right of pornographers to create their material and disseminate it, uh, in a market society, uh irreparably damages women uh, by presenting them as essentially the objects of male desire, uh, whose bodies can be commodified and used uh, without much consideration for their humanity or their innate dignity. And so McKinnon argues sometimes that there's no problem with circumscribing liberal rights to expression uh, if this will be to the benefit uh, of women, especially since she thinks that there's an empirical case to be made that something like pornography um, actually contributes uh, to the escalation of violence against women in society. Uh, now this is problematic as an empirical claim, and it's been disproved in several different ways, uh, but this is the kind of style uh, of argumentation you'll see some of the more radical critics give. Uh, not just that liberalism is has never been fully granted, uh, liberal rights have never been fully granted to everyone, uh, but there was a problem with the liberal outlook to begin with, because it simply uh, has this very narrow understanding of what humanity is and the kind of political morality that's appropriate uh, to the human species.
1: Moving right along, you turn to arguably the most important theorist, uh, at least in this last century of uh, liberalism, Rawls, um, who offers what you could kind of describe as a sort of course correction for liberalism, particularly by Uh, adding an emphasis, uh, not on equality, but um, I think the term that I see used often with him is egalitarianism. Um, So can you talk about kind of the the course correction Rawls is trying to offer
0: up? Yeah, well, one of the reasons why I devote quite a lot of attention to what I call the egalitarian liberals uh, in the latter, and like uh, the later parts of the book, is because I think this really demonstrates how some of the critics of liberalism have been uncharitable and regarding it as just monolithically committed uh, to one political value. Uh, for instance, you know, the political value of liberty uh, or the political power, uh, value of respect for private property. Uh, well, my argument is that if you actually look uh, at the kind of richness of liberal theorizing, particularly as it uh, started to evolve in the 19th and the 20th century, there was this deep emphasis uh, on equality uh, and concern for the equality of all human beings. Uh, and in fact, I would argue that this goes back to Kant, right, with his argument for the fundamental dignity of all human beings, which places them beyond price. Uh, and the way Rawls kind of develops uh, or innovates on this, and he's very much inspired by Kant, uh, is by saying that we need to recognize that the existent state of affairs uh, b- may very well be inadequate uh, to any genuine conception of justice or any sufficiently rational conception of justice, uh, precisely because this isn't necessarily what any person, what all individuals would have chosen uh, if they were given the option to try to decide what kind of society they wanted to live in. Uh, And a lot of his thought experiments are meant to correct for that by showing that if we actually had granted every person Uh, the chance to have a say about what kind of society they want to live in, then they would have chosen to live in a society that actually looks quite different uh, than the one we find ourselves in right now. Uh, They would certainly still want to protect many of the classical liberal rights, uh, and this is reflected in Rawls' argument for the first principle of justice, uh, as he puts it, uh, that everyone should have the same scheme of basic liberties compatible with uh, everyone else's. Um, But they would want to supplement that by being committed to a very egalitarian uh, program of resource distribution, uh, by ensuring that any inequalities that did exist had to work to the benefit of the least well off, uh, and it's hard to uh, like, and it's hard to overstate how radical this principle can be if it's interpreted properly. Uh, and one of the things that I point out, uh, following people like Edmondson, is that what Rawls is suggesting here is that any commitment. Uh, To this basic liberal uh, principle of moral equality uh, and reflecting uh, the kind of thought processes he engages in to try to show that the society we live in right now isn't the one we'd want to live in uh, leads us to the conclusion that what we would need is a kind of liberal socialism uh, where, yes, there would be minor inequities uh, in property, which are necessary in order to incentivize people to work and to be economically productive but they wouldn't reach nearly the kind of levels uh, that we see today, uh, where you know, 50 Americans can own as much as the bottom third combined, right?
1: Yeah, moving right along with that, um, you turn to Nozick, uh, who has emphasized property rights a lot more intensely than uh, most of the people you talk about. Um, but this, of course, brings back the tensions we talked about earlier between uh, various uh, liberal rights um and liberal egalitarianism versus private property rights. So can you kind of talk about uh, the development Nozick brings in and how you see that fitting in here?
0: Sure. Well, I think that there are two arguments that people tend to give uh, defending you know, inequality from a broadly liberal standpoint. Um, and you know, this is what you see amongst a lot of right-wing liberals. Uh, it's different when you look at reactionaries. You tend to be much more committed to inequality as a virtue in and of itself, but we'll put that aside for right now. Uh, One of the arguments that you see people make for inequality uh, is the kind of argumentation that is probably best espoused by somebody like F.A. Hayek, right, Uh, who gives a consequentialist argument for inequality. Uh, And putting it really simply, the argument is, look, uh, we can accept that under current conditions, not everyone who gets rich or who has a lot uh, necessarily deserves it. Uh, And, you know, the inverse is true as well. Many people who are poor may not deserve that, Uh, they've simply lacked the skills, uh, that they need in order to compete adequately in the market system. Uh, maybe we should provide a little bit for them. Uh, but the reality is that any effort to try to rectify, uh, the inequalities that emerge from a firm commitment, uh, to capitalist economics is just going to lead to people being worse off in the long run. You know, it'll lead to decreasing aggregate utility, um, over time, uh, and, this is an interesting kind of claim. Uh, it certainly appeals to the consequentialists that, uh, you know, consequentialists in all of us at times. Uh, the problem then becomes: well, if you can see that there's no real moral argument for inequality, uh, there's just a consequentialist argument for inequality. Uh, then, how much inequality is necessary uh, in order to still ensure that we have an economically productive society? Uh, and you know, this is an empirical question. There's a lot of back and forth on this. Uh, The kind of argument that Nozick makes, though, uh, is very different, because he's not fundamentally making a consequentialist argument for inequality. Uh, His is a straightforward moral argument that there are certain natural rights that people have. Uh, Any infringement of those rights is a very great wrong Uh, that should be avoided, if at all possible. Uh, And one of the rights that we have is a right to property. Uh, And what we do when we violate people's fundamental right to property is essentially treat them as a means to our ends, uh, which is a little different, uh, Nozick sometimes applies, than treating them as a slave. Uh, and you know, one example that he gives is, if you think about what's entailed in by redistributive programs, uh, essentially what you have is a government official who has a pattern vision of how they think resources should be distributed in society. Uh, and they feel that they are entitled to essentially take uh, what someone has earned through their work uh, to put it to the purposes that they think are more appropriate. And Nozick says, you know, that's a little different in some respects uh, than a slave master who sits there and feels that they better know what to do with the fruits of the slave's labor and are therefore entitled to take it uh, and put it to the use that they think is more appropriate. Uh, And I think there are a lot of problems with the arguments that Nozick gives for this position, uh, but nonetheless, it's a compelling argument uh, you know, Nozick was a brilliant guy. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and I devote quite a bit of time in him in the book and uh, trying to refute him precisely because I think that he gives the most powerful argument for inequality from a broadly liberal standpoint.
1: Yeah. Coming up uh, about as close as we can to kind of our times, one of the last figures you've at in this history is Jürgen Habermas, who you point out is managing to remain incredibly prolific, even at the age of 90. He just put out... Uh, I think in German, like a thousand page tome, which is yet to be translated, but, um, core to his work, at least that you're picking up is, uh, the idea that, um, the enlightenment and liberalism are kind of these unfinished projects. And this is kind of in a way him critiquing, I think the Frankfurt school, but also trying to reanimate, uh, the history of liberalism and kind of, Mm uh, put it back into the public sphere. So can you talk a bit about, uh, the developments you see happening in Habermas with regard to liberalism?
0: Sure. Well, I'll, here I'll draw a little bit on Axel Honneth, uh, who's also a major figure in the Frankfurt School and I think espouses um, the kind of essence of the Habermasian view more clearly, right? Uh, because honeth will say circa Habermas that uh, there are three major kinds of freedom uh, that are worth having. Uh, and the problem with the liberal tradition uh, is it's tended to only value one, uh, I would actually argue that the egalitarian liberals tend to value too. Uh, the first kind of freedom that's worth having is negative liberty, right? Uh, which, putting it very simply, just means, uh, as Ben Shapiro would say, you know, don't tread on me, right? Uh, I'm left to free uh, when the state and uh, other people don't impose their will upon me or try to coerce me into doing something that I don't want to do, right? Uh, and there's no doubt that this is a valuable um, kind of freedom. Uh, and it's the one that's been most cherished by classical liberals. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to do away with it. And I don't think any good, just society should. Uh, but the second kind of freedom, uh, what's sometimes called positive or substantive freedom, uh, is also extremely important. Uh, and Hanath means it somewhat differently than Berlin. Uh, but what he basically means is the freedom to do something, right? Uh, so for instance, I might have a lot of liberty, negative liberty, uh, if I'm living on a deserted island in the sense that no one's coercing me to do anything, uh, but I don't actually have a lot of positive or substantive freedom uh, because the options uh, for what I can do with my life are extremely constrained. Right? Uh, I can more or less walk around the island, pick up coconuts, uh, and, or go for a swim, and that's it. Right? Uh, whereas somebody who, for instance, has a knowledge of resources, is capable of pursuing many different life projects, uh, lives in a thriving social sphere, they have a lot more options about what they're going to be able to do with their life and therefore have more substantive liberty uh, than the person living on the deserted island does, for example. Even if the person on the deserted island uh, enjoys a great deal of negative liberty. Uh, and then further to that, Hanath argues that we need to talk about a third kind of freedom, um, what we can call social or civic freedom, uh, or social and civic liberty. You know, uh, And what essentially this entails uh, is something that's in many more respects a lot older Than what we find with the classical liberal tradition. Uh, And it's the freedom to have a say uh, in the laws and institutions that govern us. Um, And this is actually exceptionally important. Uh, People like Kana Arendt knew this uh, because having a say in uh, the political, uh, in in the social and political um, institutions and laws that govern us allow us to. Negotiate how it is that all of our other rights and all of our other liberties are going to be understood. Uh, so, for example, a typical right that's associated with social or civic freedom is the right to vote, right? Uh, the right to vote is important because it allows you to have a say in what political party is going to be in office. Uh, but my argument, following somebody like Habermas uh, or Honeth, is that. Uh, with the exception of granting suffrage, uh, like suffrage uh, to a majority of the population, and there's still serious problems with this in the United States, we've done very little to actually expand people's civic or social freedom for an exceptionally long time. Uh, if anything, what we've seen under neoliberalism uh, is the strong pushback on the idea that civic or social freedom is even meaningful or all that important, uh, largely because neoliberalism aspired to insulate uh, markets and capital from the influence of democracy. Uh, And this has generated, and Habermas is uh, very, very astute in analyzing this, a tremendous sense of animosity on the part of the population who increasingly feels that political institutions and the laws that govern them uh, work for certain people, uh, but aren't actually driven in any way by what the public wants from below. Uh, And I think this is responsible uh, in no small part for the tremendous amount of anger uh, that you've seen. Emerging in politics, uh, European and uh, Anglo American politics, uh, over the last five years. Uh, and the way to heal that is by taking a good long look uh, at how it is that we can expand people's social or civic freedom. Uh, for instance, by instituting things like more direct democ- democratic measures uh, along the lines of what we see in countries like Denmark or Ireland, uh, by restoring uh, a sense of pride in community by building attachments between citizens and restoring a sense of civic friendship. Uh, There's a lot of uh, elements to this that I think are important. Uh, And all of these are articulated very nicely in Habermas's work, uh, since he's long argued that liberalism without democracy uh, is eventually going to be neither particularly liberal uh, or particularly democratic.
1: Yeah. So on top of this whole history you've given us of uh, liberalism and its relation to property rights, um, you then kind of start to offer up your own takes. Um, And central to your understanding of liberalism is dignity, which you define as an individual's overall capacity to engage in self-authorship. So to kind of kick things off here, could you just kind of unpack uh, your definition here and why uh, you think this is kind of such a a central pillar for uh, thinking about uh, the liberal project.
0: Yeah, exactly. And well, one of the reasons why I talk about self-authorship is because uh, I was trying to give it existential to mention uh, to why it is that we consider freedom to be valuable. Right? Um, freedom isn't just valuable because we want to be able to do what it is that we want, uh, which is again. As you pointed out, sometimes what we see in the work of early classical liberals like Hobbes uh, or Locke, uh, who tend to emphasize human desire. Uh, The point that I was trying to make is that freedom is important because we want to be a certain kind of person uh, in whom we can take pride uh, and also to lead a certain kind of life uh, in association with others that seems meaningful uh, and to contribute something of lasting uh, and unique value to the world. Uh, And the argument that I kind of make is that while the liberal tradition has done a tremendous amount in respecting uh, the dignity of individuals by emphasizing things uh, like uh, negative liberty uh, and to a lesser extent trying to empower them uh, in terms of substantive uh, freedom or substantive liberty, uh, there's still a lot more that we can do. Uh, And this is where I come up with my own argument uh, for a twin conception of rights. Uh, that's modeled in many ways off of John Rawls' Two Principles of Justice. Uh, certainly it's in the same spirit. Uh, and I think that this can provide a certain amount of normative guidance uh, on how we should be thinking about reorienting our societies going forward. Um, and the kind of empirical takeaway from this, uh, or empirical dimension to this, of course, is that um, while I was writing the book, uh, you know, we live in an unusual time where there's a lot of political anger. Uh, I also think that holding to these two twin rights uh, and expanding people's dignity in the way that I argue for uh, would be a corrective uh, to a lot of the conditions that have led to all the anger that you see in politics today, uh, and in particular, the emergence of reactionary movements like postmodern conservatism.
1: Yeah. So in this kind of whole history, you've brought up uh, a number of critiques of uh, liberalism, you know, Marx and Zizek from the left, Nozick from the right, Um, in various kind of additions and corrections from figures like Rawls and Abramas more recently. Um, But in spite of these critiques, you want to uh, maintain some level of fidelity to liberalism and its emphasis on rights. So I'm wondering if you could just talk real briefly about kind of why you think in spite of these critiques and even where you see them as kind of offering something very forceful, you want to maintain uh, the emphasis on rights as a central part of your understanding here.
0: Sure. Well, I should say this is actually where uh, my argument links up nicely to the other problem of my work, which is, again, critical. Uh, and I've unpacked some of these associations uh, in a number of different articles I've written for Jacobin uh, on the association between liberalism and socialism uh, and modernity. Uh, people can take a look at them if they're interested. Uh, but what I essentially argue is this, that liberalism uh, is fundamentally a modernist project uh, in that it is committed to the freedom of the individual, uh, and to the moral equality of all. Um, and these two things are inextricably linked to one another. Uh, since s- given that we regard all individuals as moral equals, uh, that means that no one should be entitled to impose their vision of the good life on anyone else, uh, which will constitute an infringement of their, liter- uh, of their liberty. Um, so there's a strong elective affinity between uh, these two principles, uh, and they're extremely powerful. Uh, and they've been at the epicenter of a lot of the revolutionary movements for emancipation uh, that you've seen, character- as, and which are characteristic of modernity. Uh, and what I think sometimes that the political left forgets uh, is how it is that liberalism uh, as an ideological and political movement uh, was often at the forefront of these revolutionary movements from the very beginning. Uh, you could think of the Glorious Revolution, Circle Locke, uh, or the French Revolution, uh, although of course that had a strong Soviet-like element as well. Uh, and somebody like Marx was very cognizant of this, right? Uh, he would often point out that the truly dialectical uh, approach to freedom that, or sorry to emancipation that he was arguing for uh, showcases why it is that any society that's going to go beyond liberalism, Uh, isn't necessarily going to be a radical break from it. Uh, It's because it's still committed to the modernist project of emancipation. Uh, It's going to be stamped uh, with the features of the liberal society that came before. Uh, And so what I'm doing in this respect is really in keeping with this Marxist dialectical spirit uh, of recognizing that any kind of left-wing project uh, that's committed to emancipation and equality owes something profound uh, to the liberal tradition, Uh, And rather than trying to cut ourselves off from that, uh, we should be open-minded about what insights we can glean from the liberal tradition, while at the same time recognizing it has many fundamental limitations that need to be overcome by a commitment to furthering uh, different kinds of liberties that too many liberals often ignore. For instance, the ones I talked about just a few moments ago. Another very kind of important part of a lot
1: of these uh, theoretical developments and critiques is uh, the role of the state and more broadly, just institutionalized authorities' role in helping people either express and experience dignity or protecting property rights. Um, And you do see it playing a role in your understanding of liberalism here. So I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, the role you see the state playing and uh, kind of this supposedly ideal society you're kind of creating. Um, What do you see the state's role
0: here? Sure. Well, one of the things that I point out is that um, we should be very skeptical uh, of deploying the state to try to secure greater liberties uh, and greater levels of equality for all uh, unless we engage in a thorough process of democratizing um, both our life world uh, and broader political institutions um, and the laws that govern us. Um, And one of the reasons why I think that uh, earlier projects for social emancipation, uh, such as those carried out by social democracy, uh, sorry, social democrats uh, and democratic socialists in the 20th century faltered, uh, is while they often tried to engage in projects of top-down redistribution, uh, they did very little to actually try to establish a more democratic uh, form of life. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why I think they invariably ended up faltering, uh, because once the kind of energy uh, and political will to engage in uh, the project of social democracy and democratic socialism faltered, um, you, neoliberal elites were able to come in, essentially reseize control of the state uh, and pivot it in a much more reactionary dimension. Uh, And this is one of the reasons why I think it's important to democratize, since that's the only way that we're going to be able to preserve um, the uh, accomplishments uh, of any kind of democratic socialism or social democracy, uh, which was the mistake uh, that you saw a lot of earlier leftists make, not realizing that you need to engage in this process of democratization by making the state accountable to those it serves. Uh, and instead assuming that this could all be carried out as some kind of top-down project. Uh, an exemplar of this would be somebody like Alexander Kojev, uh, who didn't just want to think in, sta- in states terms, uh, but also was a pioneering advocate for the European Union, uh, which, as we all know, is very much under attack right now because even though it has a lot of nice egalitarian features uh, to it, uh, nonetheless, many of the populations it purports to govern feel a little connection to it. Uh, I feel it's very much a technocratic uh, institution that's imposing itself upon them. Quite rightly so, I should say. Uh,
1: One of the central uh, conflicts in discussing uh, equality in a society is the question of whether to emphasize equality of capabilities or equality of resources. So just kind of, uh, could you maybe explain uh, the dichotomy here and what each of these uh, might look like in practice and where you think we ought to kind of invest our energy in?
0: Sure. Well, I, I should say that the resources approach uh, that you see pioneered by people like uh, Rawls or Dworkin, for that matter, uh, basically holds that the kind of equality that we should be aiming for is just ensuring that everybody has the same amount of stuff uh, subject to certain kind of limitations and qualifications, you know, like those I uh, indicated earlier. Uh, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with this, but I think it's problematic in the sense that What would enable a lot of people to lead dignified lives isn't just having more stuff, it's being more capable. Uh, And this can seem like a pedantic distinction, uh, but one of the things that I, one of the examples I draw upon to highlight this uh, comes from the literature on disability studies, right? Uh, Imagine you were an individual with a serious physical disability uh, that limited your mobility. Uh, Just giving you money, for example, to compensate you for that physical disability might not be particularly meaningful. Uh, Since if you really want to lead a life of dignified self-authorship, it might be more important for you to see changes made to the architecture uh, of various buildings to make them more handy accessible uh, so that you can get in there with your wheelchair your crutches. uh, And that will do a lot more uh, to actually make you capable uh, of leading a life of dignified self-authorship. So this is where I'm critical of the resources approach uh, to equality. By saying, while it has a lot of good stuff to, uh, like stuff in it, uh, what we should be focusing on isn't just what people have, but what they're able to do, uh, which is in many ways a much more challenging uh, and nuanced way of looking at liberty uh, and its association with equality. Uh, and it's pioneered by people like uh, Amartya Sen and Martha Nosebaum, and I try to link that uh, to my argument for human dignity in the book. So turning
1: to kind of defenses of inequality and hierarchy, um, we've talked about Jordan Peterson before on this podcast, um, who defends hierarchy in what you might say kind of is a very basic or vulgar way. But you also mentioned that there are some conservatives, such as Alexis de Tocqueville or Alastair McIntyre, who uh, have a more sophisticated account, um, who suggest that the dissolution of certain social hierarchies is to blame for the malaise of modernity um mm-hmm. you still find yourself critical here but um you do think it's a better uh, more sophisticated critique that's worth taking seriously so can you kind of unpack um uh figures like McIntyre here uh in your response to them
0: sure well I should just say that um uh... The fact that I find them more sophisticated and admirable intellectually doesn't mean I agree with them any more uh, than I agree with somebody like Jordan Peterson, right? Uh, Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, it it just means that I think Peterson uh, dramatically overstates the novelty of his positions, uh, quite consistently going back to maps of meaning, right? Uh, And not just the novelty of his positions, but their sophistication, uh, since I think a lot of what he says uh, is said elsewhere earlier and better by people like McIntyre, for example, Uh, But here I think it's important to draw a distinction between right-wing liberals uh, and genuine reactionaries, right? Since I think that this brings to the fore uh, what's at stake in debates about inequality. Uh, Right-wing liberals, people like Robert Nozick uh, or people like F.A. Hayek, uh, tend to believe that high levels of inequality are permissible, but they tend to make this argument for liberal or consequentialist reasons, right? Uh, Hayek believes, uh, yes, inequality might need to be, might need to stay with us. Uh, But this isn't because people are unequal. Uh, It's because inequality stimulates economic growth, uh, and that'll be to the benefit of all in the long run, right? Uh, Nozick makes a similar argument. He says, look, you know, inequality doesn't exist because people are unequal. Uh, It exists because if you let the market run, uh, people are going to make free exchanges, uh, and they're going to allocate resources in line with their desires and their interests, uh, and that's inevitably going to degenerate in all qualities because liberty disrupts patterns, uh, as he puts it in the kind of famous bumper sticker slogan uh, in the book. Right? Uh, what distinguishes this approach from those of reactionaries is reactionaries believe, quite fundamentally, that people are not equal. Right? Uh, they are unequal from birth, and oftentimes they become more unequal as time goes along. Uh, And there's a lot of justifications given for this view, and we can talk about a few of them, Uh, but you can see how that differs dramatically uh, from the outlook uh, of genuine liberals uh, who tend to hold, as I mentioned, uh, that all individuals are moral equals, which is one of the reasons why it is that they should be free, right? Uh, And you highlight a few of the figures uh, in the book uh, that have made arguments for the fundamental inequality of human beings. Uh, I'll just like kind of signpost two of them, right? Uh, one example uh, of an individual who is fundamentally committed to the idea that all individuals are not equal is Frederick Nietzsche, uh, who I think is the greatest reactionary, right? Uh, and Nietzsche is very expressive about this. He's, critical, he's hypercritical of the French Revolution. Uh, he talks consistently about how it is that we need a new aristocracy uh, of better, stronger, fiercer uh, men. It's almost inevitably going to be men. Uh, who will take the pace of the kind of soft, genteel liberal figures of today. Uh, and the reason is because the real aristocracy of individuals uh, are willing to engage in great meaning-given projects uh, that can give a semblance of significance to life that will otherwise lack. Uh, and if we don't actually allow this aristocracy to come to the fore, what we're going to get is instead is a liberal society of last men uh, who are just going to dedicate themselves to Venial pleasures, um, the venial pleasures of the herd, I should say, Uh, and consequently what we're going to see is the spread of a nihilistic malaise uh, becoming deeper and deeper entrenched in the culture uh, and consequently being harder and harder to get rid of, right? Uh, Another figure who makes an argument for inequality from a very different perspective uh, is, as you mentioned, Alistair McIntyre. Uh, and here we have to be very careful since, of course, McIntyre is very much a critic uh, of someone like Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, you know, he argues that this kind of Nietzschean desire for uh, a new aristocracy to merge uh, is in itself indicative of the nihilism of our contemporary era. But that's because uh, what McIntyre wants is a return to an older conception of excellence, one that's predicated on Aristotelian uh, virtue ethics. right? Uh, and the kind of argument that McIntyre makes is: Look, you know, we all respect that some people are better than others uh, at some things. In fact, some individuals are better than others at almost at most things, right? Uh, but rather than seeing this as cause for concern, uh, we should rather see these people as exemplars uh, of a particular practice that can inspire us to do better, right? Uh, so, an example given by Ian Shapiro in his discussion of McIntyre's work is. Uh, you might look at somebody who's a great pitcher in the game, in baseball, right? Uh, and rather than seeing the fact that he's a great pitcher uh, as a consequence of some kind of moral arbitrary uh, you know, distribution of talents, uh, or as a consequence of some exploitative system that rewards some people over others, uh, we should look at that pitcher and say, look, he's really good at what he does. Uh, I want to become good at that activity like he is. Uh, And so I'm going to draw lessons and inspiration from him uh, to inspire me to do better, right? Uh, And McIntyre's argument is that you can see these exemplars in many different spheres of life, uh, and we should try to essentially venerate uh, these individuals since that's the only way that we're going to learn from them. Uh, So a very different argument for inequality than Nietzsche's, uh, but actually I think a more compelling argument for inequality than Nietzsche's. Uh, But nonetheless, still committed pretty resolutely to this anti-modernist outlook, uh, since it's fundamentally committed to the idea that some people are just more virtuous than others, uh, and people are more virtuous than others uh, are so because they essentially embody better characteristics, uh, and therefore are worthy of emulation and praise.
1: One of the uh, last additions you make uh, in the book is you point out that liberal theory often struggles to keep up with the more fast paced dynamics of capitalism uh, and to kind of supplement this a little bit, you turn to a couple sources who I was definitely not expecting in a book like this. You turn to figures like Henri Bergson and Gilles Deleuze uh, to develop a more dynamic legal ontology that can kind of keep pace Um With capitalism. So, can you kind of talk about this supplement you make and how you see it kind of helping your liberalism be more dynamic, I guess, Um, or kind of keep up and adjust as need be?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the points that I make is that uh, the liberal conception of rights has often been associated uh, with various philosophies of liberal legalism, right? Uh, And one of the characteristic features of liberal legalism. Uh, is that it's very focused on maintaining order, right, and stability, uh, like most legal philosophies are, I should say. Uh, And this is highly problematic uh, since, of course, the economic um, driver of many liberal societies uh, is a capitalist system that's precisely disorderly, right? Uh, It tends to be characterized by what should be called processes of creative destruction uh, that upend some modes of life and replace them with others, right? Uh, And so the kind of liberal fascination uh, with a law that maintains a constant order has always existed in stark tension uh, to this commitment to an economic system uh, that's predicated for its very existence uh, on constantly upending social relations as they stand right now, right? Uh, Now, I should say that I'm not making an argument here for the virtues of capitalism in this respect. Uh, What I'm saying is that the kind of tensions that we see here between liberal legalism and support for a capitalist economic order will be better overcome by thinking about the law in more vitalistic terms. Uh, And this is where I draw on the people like Henri Bergson and Jules Deleuze that you're talking about. Uh, But then I put a further twist on this by saying that as part and parcel of the broader project uh, of overcoming liberalism, uh, or at least the limitations of liberalism, Uh, one of the cash benefits of adopting this kind of different ontological approach to the law uh, is that it can be married more nicely to an argument for an empowered democracy uh, of the type that I'm talking about, uh, where we try to enable citizens to have more of a say uh, in the laws that govern them and the political institutions uh, that direct so much of society. Uh, And this would inevitably involve accepting a degree of disorder that many liberals uh, have long been hostile to uh, because they see too much democracy as disruptive. Uh, While my argument is that not only will we gain economic benefits uh, by accepting a legal ontology uh, that puts change and disorder at its epicenter, uh, but that also enables us to think of new and novel ways of linking democracy uh, to a kind of post-liberal or liberal socialist society. Uh, that's more in a way that's kind of creative and imaginative. uh, And I hope to write a little bit more about in the future.
1: Yeah. Jumping right off of that. um, That brings us more or less to the end of the book. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now?
0: Uh, So right now I'm actually writing a new book. uh, That's a sequel to the rise of postmodern conservatism. um, Because one of the things that that book was criticized for was that uh, for a book of postmodernism in the title, I actually speak very little about postmodernity. modernity uh, There's one chapter uh, on the subject in the book, uh, and then I most or less just dive right into the history of conservative thought, uh, how post-modern conservatism emerged, uh, why we should be critical of it, and so on and so forth. Uh, so this book is singularly focused on describing the postmodern epoch, as I understand it. Uh, and the argument that I make is that postmodernity emerged because of three factors uh, – One was the advent of liberalism, uh, which is a link to this book. Uh, But then there was also uh, the emergence of capitalism as a worldwide uh, global mode of production. Uh, And then secularism, uh, which I think has also been been undervalued uh, as a contributor to uh, the emergence of postmodernity on the political left. Uh, And the kind of argument that I make is that the emblematic uh, feature of postmodernity isn't actually a decline of faith in metanarratives. Uh, but a shift in the way that human beings apprehend uh, their temporal existence, understand time, if you will. Because uh, my argument is that modernity was characterized by people increasingly seeing time in historical terms. Uh, time was human history and progress, right? Uh, whereas what's characteristic of postmodernity is that people approach time phenomenologically, right? Uh, in terms of their individuated experience. Uh, and there are good things about this. You know, it's not a relentless critique of postmodernity in the sense that I think we should reject uh, this new emphasis on phenomenological time. Uh, but the argument I make is that the devolution of a sense of historical time uh, has proven extremely detrimental uh, precisely because it creates the sense that the social conditions that we live in right now uh, simply are what they are and cannot be changed. Uh, as Margaret Thatcher put it, you know, there is no alternative. Uh, to the kind of capitalist realism that we inhabit right now. Uh, And so my argument is that we should try to find a way uh, to move past postmodernity by taking the expressivist virtues uh, of this phenomenological approach to time, but remarrying it uh, to a conception of time as history that enables us to think more critically uh, and more adventurously about the kind of shared world that we want to create in the future.
1: Yeah, that sounds excellent. So Uh, In the meantime, Matt McManus, thank you so much for being with us again.
0: Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot for having me.